The horse paused beside the obelisk. In the east, the sky was lightening gently, a pearlish pre-dawn luminescence that made the people of the graveyard uncomfortable and made them think about returning to their comfortable homes. Even so, not a one of them moved. They were watching the lady on the gray, each of them half excited, half scared. The dead are not superstitious, not as a rule, but they watched her as a Roman augur might have watched the sacred crow's circle, seeking wisdom, seeking a clue. And she spoke to them. In a voice like the chiming of a hundred tiny silver bells, she said only, the dead should have charity, and she smiled. Mother Slaughter and Josiah Worthington Baronet accompanied Mr. Owens to the crypt of the old chapel, and they told Mrs. Owens the news. She seemed unsurprised by the miracle. That's right, she said. Some of them don't have a portion of sense in their heads, but she does, of course she does. And this is how nobody Owens came to the graveyard. And we're back at Lies Speaking Truth. I'm Roy Askins, and with me as always uh, is Chris Gillespie. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. Today we're doing the second half of our two-part series on the Jungle Book and the Graveyard Book. As always, we'll try to tease out the themes of the Graveyard Book uh, and then make comparisons between the two stories, the Graveyard Book and the Jungle Book, uh, and most especially in terms of the worldviews that differ between these two books. Uh, You can contact us, as always, at talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. Please uh, send us emails. You can also leave comments on the website uh, under each uh, podcast, or you can get in touch with us through our Facebook page as well, Lies Speaking Truth. Uh, Once again, our story today today is The Graveyard Book, a book that was written by Neil Gaiman and originally published in 2008. That's correct. 2008. Uh, I believe it's possible he might have done this uh, partly as a, or one time as a uh, uh, graphic novel. I seem to see pictures to that effect online when I was looking for it, but I don't recall exactly. Um, so uh, that's what we're reviewing today. If you'd like to support the show, please uh, go to the link on the website and uh, purchase the book through there. We get a little bit of change back from Amazon if you do it that way. Uh, once again, uh, the ground rules, as always, there will be spoilers. If you haven't read the book and would like to read it without it being spoiled, stop the podcast now, read the book, and then come back for more. Uh, also note that when we're looking for themes, we're not trying to force themes onto the text, but rather we're looking uh, at the text itself, the story itself, and, and trying to tease out the themes that are there in the story. Uh, and the other thing we're, we try to do is not to uh, read the author's story and to psychologize about the author himself, uh, but rather we try to take the story as a story and understand the story on its own terms, rather than trying to psychologize about the different about the or the author and things like that. Um, so that's the ground rules. Uh, you, you should also take a note uh, on the website, on the blog, uh, where we'll be posting here pretty soon a worldview diagnostic spreadsheet that you can use when you're reading um, reading other books that we have yet to review. Um, and uh, we'll also be referring to that in our in our podcast today. So do pull that open, uh, print it off or whatever, have it on your computer screen as you follow along with us. The Graveyard Book takes the Jungle Book for its inspiration. Uh, Neil Gaiman, in fact, in the end, in his acknowledgments, acknowledges that he took the Jungle Book, uh, the stories of the Jungle Book, some of the stories for the Jungle Book, as his inspiration. And like the Jungle Book, it's a series of short stories. Uh, but these stories, I think, and you can disagree with me, Chris, if you want, but I think these stories 
uh, tell a larger narrative a bit better than the Jungle Book does. I think the Jungle Book stories, uh, individual chapters, are a little more encapsulated, whereas there's there's more of an overarching story that's told in in Gaiman's uh, short stories. Uh, I mean, because I mean, you look at the the Jungle Book and Kipling. Uh, really, he's got the the two stories that are related. The first one is how. Uh, Mowgli came to to the jungle, and then the other one that's related is the third story in the first volume, where he actually kills uh, Shere Khan. But then the other stories don't even mention Shere Khan hardly at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that as a result of um, the genre of the writing, and that it's clear that that Kipling, I mean, he was writing uh, episodic tales to be printed in magazine, whereas uh, this this was conceived first a short story, and then from the short story into a larger narrative. We'll have in the show notes, uh, there's a couple of links I'll have in there where um, Neil Gaiman talks about how he uh, conceived of these stories and, and how it kind of came to him and, and where the stories come from. And I'll have a couple of those links in the show notes. So if you'd like a little more information on on those, on those thoughts, uh, do look there. The basic overview of the story. Uh, basically what happens is Bod's parents um, get killed when he's a very young baby. Uh, the, the book opens uh, with this man killing Bod's parents and, and his sister, uh, and Bod manages to escape uh, and uh, ends up going into a graveyard, and the graveyard adopts him. And the rest of the book is the story of his life in the graveyard and of eventually how he avenged his family's death. I mean, that's just the basic overarching narrative mm-hmm. of the story. And so, like many of the other books we've kind of talked about, is something about coming-of-age story, um, but it, but a little different in that it seems most coming-of-age stories, the, primary, the, the climax occurs at the end where they really come of age. And I think this is more gradual in terms of Bod's coming-of-age, that, that, you know, each little story, uh, put, you know, makes, puts him one step uh, further in terms of his maturity and, and growing up and coming of age. Uh, and and the, each step is incrementally roughly the same, as opposed to other stories where uh, the, the coming of age really occurs at the very end. Am I making any sense there, Chris? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we've decided to, to progress through this story is actually to go chapter by chapter uh, and just kind of deal, since the stories are, even though they tell a larger narrative, the individual chapters are are somewhat uh, encapsulated short stories, we decided to go through each chapter individually. So the mm-hmm. first chapter is how nobody came to the graveyard. And the basic, uh, like I said, it opens with nobody's parents uh, being killed and uh, and uh, Jack is looking for him. Uh, nobody escapes the house as a, as a young infant. He's just basically learned how to walk and he, he escapes the house. This is at night, goes up into the graveyard and uh, Jack, the one who killed his parents, is, smells him. He's got special talents, Jack does. He goes up into the graveyard and, and tries to kill him. But the people of the graveyard intercede. And, uh, and uh, uh, Mrs. Owens uh, takes nobody as her own child. And, uh, and the people of the graveyard start to debate whether or not to keep nobody as a member of the graveyard. And, and the portion that we read for our introduction is when the lady on the gray who uh, comes and says... The dead should be charitable, and that basically decided it. The lady on the gray is the lady who comes and, and takes everybody to uh, at the time of death. And when she said that, everybody decided, well, that's it. And they nobody stays in the graveyard, and, and nobody Owens was given the freedom of the graveyard, as they say. And, and that's how he came to the graveyard. So uh, that's the basic gist behind the first chapter. Uh, any initial impressions and thoughts, Chris? Well, that they're, they're politics. 
you know, that they were a democracy. Graveyard is not normally a democracy, and yet death is the great democracy, and each of the dead had a voice and opinion as to whether the living child should be allowed to stay or not. Uh, and they they each determined to be heard that night, but then she comes and silences them, as you say. And so there is this, there is still yet, he's presenting this hierarchy even within within uh, death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's the elder members and the younger members of the graveyard, and... Um, I think I think in a, in a similar way that Kipling did, uh, he's trying to communicate, um, you know, that that our world is and ought to be orderly, and he uses a, a foreign uh, context to kind of teach us that, like we saw with the um, uh, with the wolf pack and how they how they became disorderly, and it wasn't a good thing, but that they they operated and they had kind of an authority structure and a, a way of speaking and conducting themselves, and, mm-hmm. and here. You know, she steps in to kind of set that aright, right from the beginning. You know, I don't know if there's a direct correlation as to who the Lady on the Gray is, uh, if or if she's kind of a unique character that doesn't really correspond between the two books. Yeah, I don't. I think uh, she's a unique character. I, I didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. never occurred to me because she's something of a. Uh, in terms of characters, she's a very a, a very spiritual character in some ways, and I use that term to refer to the fact that she's not she's not in the world of the living, and she's yet even she's kind of like Silas. She's she walks the boundaries between the worlds of the living and the living the living and the dead. Right, exactly. Mowgli is the only one that walks the line between the jungle and the civilized world. Right, so. and that is one of the differences in this in this is that there are characters that that. Um, uh, don't have direct correspondence. I think, you know, as actually one of the reviewers in the back kind of called it a, a jazz riff on on the Jungle <laughs> Books. And I, well, that's helpful. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're not going to see direct correlation. Some of the stories I think are directly connected, but others, um, this, you know, this is generally, you know, his assimilation into into the, the culture of, of the graveyard, just as Mowgli was integrated into the uh, into the wolf pack. So while we're on this, why don't we talk about some of the some of the comparisons that are um, a little more obvious? First, you have, uh, of course, nobody. Nobody is, re- would refer to Mowgli. Uh, basically, he's the character that lives between the two worlds. Uh, in the graveyard book, you have Silas, and I think Silas uh, is kind of the character that takes the place of Bagheera. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, once again, at the same time, there's not a one-to-one correlation because Bagheera. Uh, Silas has a much more he's, – he's guardian of nobody, right? But his interaction with nobody is is significantly more than Bagheera's was. Uh, Bagheera kind of watched over him, but Bagheera didn't provide him food. Uh, Bagheera didn't, you know, really guard and protect him. He saved him, you know, once uh, when he got caught by the, the uh, banderlog, the monkeys. But um, – you know, in the in the in the correlative correlative story in the graveyard book, he's actually rescued by Miss Lupescu and not correct. Uh, who's a, who? You know, would be a different character there. So, uh, once again, there's not one to one correlation. She probably could, corresponds more to um, uh, Baloo. Yeah, and that she teaches him kind of uh, of all the classifications of of mm-hmm. both living and dead creatures and. Um, she you know, teaches I, in the law of the underworld, basically. Yeah, the law of the underworld and how to communicate uh, with uh, what are the flying creatures from uh, Gulheim? Oh, the night gaunt. Yes, the night gaunt. Yeah, the night gaunts. So, yeah, I think she definitely corresponds more to to Baloo, but at the same time, there are other instructors and teachers in the graveyard that uh, 
have a correspondence to Baloo too, uh, who teach him the ways of the world. They don't teach him the way, the, like you know, the, the laws of the of the jungle. But even then, his one instructor does teach him some of the laws of the graveyard. You know how to uh, how to fade and how to slip mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so even then, there's still some sort of um, connection there. It made sense from a narrative standpoint that you know, just as uh, Mowgli uh, fell in with the ba- uh, you know the Banderlog you know, kind of uh, by not heeding Baloo's adv- uh, wisdom mm-hmm. and instruction. So so also, you know, Bod falls into it here. And in, 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 in the same way, like, really what ended up happening is Mowgli got upset because he got tired of Baloo's uh, hard instruction. And so he was... He was intentionally disobeying, right? Intentionally breaking the rules, and and that's the same thing that happened with nobody. He got right. tired of of her instruction. And yeah, right. you're exactly right. Because we got a couple more characters. Uh, you have Mister and Mrs. Owens, who I think correspond to Mother and Father Wolf uh-huh. um, from the Wolf Pack. And Josiah Worthington, uh, Baronet, I think might even ref- uh, kind of be a a, a re- reference to Akela. Once again, not a one-to-one reference because Akela loses his position in the pack for a little while. But Josiah Worthington is one of the ones that kind of keeps the pack alive and keep, or keeps the graveyard moving as a coherent whole. He kind of serves as a, a guiding figure, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Uh, then you have, of course, the Jack, who uh, uh, Jack later revealed as Jack Frost, who tries to kill nobody, uh, which would be a, a resemblance to Sh- uh, Shere Khan. But once again, the resemblance there is is not quite as strong. It's not definitely not one to one. Yeah, it seems to be that uh, the jacks are corresponding, um, you know, to the to the wild dogs. Hmm. At the end, uh, but then you know, Shere Khan kind of joins with them, if you want to put it that way. That actually, Shere Khan, not Shere Khan, is kind of, is conflated with with the the leader of the those red dogs. But Jack, the one Jack serves both those roles is kind of what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to it's hard to maintain you know in a, in a narrative uh, multiple enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of need to have a chief enemy, and so conflating those two together makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially for you know, once again, this is getting back to the the type of novel. Even though Gaiman's is a or even though uh, or Kipling's is more of more episodic, so it's easier to have separate enemies in those. And, and being the the narrative character of the, uh, the graveyard book, it makes sense to conflate those into one, like you said, because it, it provides a better overarching narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about Scarlet? Uh, this is getting into the second chapter. Yeah, Scarlet was uh, is this uh, friend that nobody makes uh in the graveyard she comes and and comes to the graveyard her her mom and dad the graveyard is is also a nature preserve and so her mom and dad bring her to the graveyard so she can play and have fun and he ends up making friends with this girl named scarlet and uh and the story uh, eventually what happens in the story is they end up going down into this dark crypt and they're confronted by this beast called the sleer and the sleer uh, feeds on fear and tries to, of course, cause them to become afraid, and they don't. And he's guarding this treasure, and so forth, and so on. Mm-hmm. But Scarlet, I don't know. You know, I didn't have a, a correlation with Scarlet. Um, I think the best you can get is maybe the lady that adopted uh, Mowgli, uh, who claimed that Mowgli was perhaps her son that she had lost. And, I, and I, it never explicitly said in the graveyard book, but I think that's a, perhaps the closest you can get, really. Yeah, I don't even know that that's even necessary. I think it could be a 
you know, he needed to have that, that counterpoint to the main character. Mm-hmm. There's someone that he could interact with and that could leave the story and then come back in as mm-hmm. part, especially as, you know, and to see how they interact differently as they, as they matured and aged. That was interesting. And that and then of course she develops the ability to interact with him, uh, you know, in a, uh, graveyard way which is kind of interesting because we didn't have anybody else in in the jungle book entering into the jungle and becoming you know right mm-hmm. but here she comes to uh, almost be able to see him uh, as he fades or he's and then uh, uh, interact with him in dream walking mm-hmm. no and, and i think uh, in terms of chapter one and two really those do the best job of setting up uh, really you could almost say that Chapters one and two, chapters one and two, and then uh, seven and eight provide the opening and closing bookends of the story. That, in terms of actually forming the narrative, really one and two set up the narrative, and then all those ends that are created in chapters one and two get tied up in seven and eight at the very end. And the middle chapters are connected to the story as a whole, but not quite as strongly connected. In chapter two, uh, they have their visit to the uh, to the cave. And uh, and their their visit with the Sleer, uh, which is a connection, which we find similarities with uh, Mowgli's visit uh, in the city where the monkeys live. He goes down and visits the White Viper, right? Cobra, 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 and and the Cobra is guarding a treasure, and the Sleer is doing the same thing, guarding right. a treasure, right? Right. And the treasures um, are equally uh, treacherous. We'll put it that way, mm. deadly. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know he he does a really good job of making the connection between Bod and Mowgli in the sense that Bod, which is short for nobody, that's what everybody calls him, doesn't really care about the treasure in in the Sleer. You know he goes down there to take a piece, but not for himself. He goes down there to take a right. piece. Uh, in chapter four, he goes down to take a piece so that he can trade it in and get some money to buy a headstone for one of the witches uh, that doesn't actually have a headstone because she was killed as a witch. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in the same way as Bod, Bod really didn't care. He's walking on all this gold, and the only reason he picked the piece that he picked, which was the, um, no, not Bod, I'm sorry, Mowgli, the piece that, piece that Mowgli picked up. Yeah. That was the poker, the elephant poker thing. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a technical term there. <laughs> um, uh, the only reason he picked it up was because it would have been useful uh, in the jungle, right? Uh, and it ended up becoming a, a, a tool by which six or seven people died. So. Mm-hmm. But I thought that connection between Bod and Mowgli was good, right? And they neither of the uh, um, the terrors of of those two places were really all that terrifying, you know, for mm-hmm. the main character. Yeah, didn't have any standard of reference to think that this character should be frightening. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. Like, Bod grew up in the graveyard amongst a whole bunch of, of ghosts, right? He grew up among the dead. And to go down there and have the Sleer uh, frighten him with death is, I mean, frankly, he's not frightened of death. The only thing he knows is death, right? He only knows the graveyards, uh, the ghosts in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who had been down to the cave beforehand had, had uh, been so frightened they, they died in some way. So mm-hmm. the one guy tripped on the stairs and died or whatever. Exactly. Uh, and and also chapter two becomes the reason um, that he doesn't see Scarlet in uh, anymore. It was not long after in chapter two he doesn't see uh, Scarlet leaves. They go up to uh, Glasgow. It was Glasgow. Yeah. Well, she they, was Scottish, I think, from the get go. Yeah, yeah. Her yeah. dad got a job in Scotland, and they left at the end of chapter two, and she doesn't come back until chapter seven, I think. Mm-hmm. Chapter three. Uh, is the Hounds of God. Chapter 3 is where uh, uh, Silas, who 
once again is serving as new, as Bod's uh, guardian and brings him food and provides for him and, and helps care for him in the graveyard, uh, has to go on a trip. And so he brings in Miss Lupescu. Uh, Miss Lupescu is a uh, is an instructor, and later on we find out she's one of the hounds of God. Uh, he brings in Miss Lupescu. She teaches him, and as she's instructing him, she's very, very uh, – she, she's German, isn't she, I think? Da, she says several times. Uh, no, that's that would be Russian. Oh, Russian. Plus, plus she feeds him Russian food. Oh, does she? My apologies. And, uh, and so he gets frustrated with her instruction, and he ends up uh, going to one of the ghoul gates. And three ghouls take him into uh, the underworld, and they go to take him to Ghoulheim, which is where the, where the ghouls live. And, uh, and Miss Lupescu, in the form of a giant shaggy gray dog, comes and rescues him and brings him back. And evidently right. it's because of the teaching she did that he was able to be saved because he was crying out to the night gaunts. The night gaunts, and, yeah. and they protected him when when he was about to die several times. Uh, let's talk about this, about Silas and Miss Lupescu as characters. And the interesting thing that uh, Neil Gaiman does with them. Silas is a character that lives, uh, is neither living nor dead. He only eats one kind of food. He has a large bag full of uh, soil that he carries with him when he goes and travels, a place to sleep, as we is revealed in the last chapter of the book. You with me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's an interesting character. Basically, I think uh, we'd come to the conclusion he doesn't show up in mirrors. Basically, he's a vampire, right? Yeah. And Miss Lupescu is one of the hounds of God. She's basically a, uh, a uh, werewolf, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the interesting thing that that uh, that Gaiman does with these characters is they become actually agents of God. <laughs> uh, you know, they're part of the honor guard. Silas and Miss Lupescu are, and and they're these uh, creatures that we normally view of as evil or in some way. That he he's changed them such that they actually serve God and and protect mm-hmm. uh, the boundary between the living and the dead. You might say, right. And in much the same way that that the dead in the gar- in the uh, graveyard um, protect him and you know provide for him mm-hmm. uh, a way that the the dead normally wouldn't. You know they should they should be frightening because they're ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they also in terms of Silas, Silas is given the freedom of the graveyard. It almost seems like we we've talked about the graveyard. You mentioned the graveyard being a democracy, and because mm-hmm. of his role as the honor guard, the graveyard gives him the freedom of the graveyard. Uh, and he has, therefore, the right to move in and out of the graveyard that you know normal people in ways that normal people wouldn't, living people wouldn't have. It, it's interesting. It's kind of difficult uh, to pick out how he goes about choosing which kind of characters to invert, right? Because you still have like the ghouls. Uh, you still have characters like Everyman Jack, right, or the Jacks. Uh, no, but the ghouls are easy because the names that they take are names of of positive people from our world, right? Like President. And a bishop, mm-hmm. Victor Hugo, <laughs> the emperor of China, which may may have been wicked. I don't know. Oh yeah, these would normally be uplifting. Yeah, yeah, admirable characters. Queens, people presidents, would look up to, prime yeah. ministers, heroes. Except they're these horrible creatures that really are just going to eat him. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> so once again, it, it, I guess that carries on with the theme of the inversion, right? Right. Uh, taking the what we would normally view as positive and negative and vice versa. Uh, one of the things in terms of the actual writing of the book, you can almost imagine Gaiman writing this with a wry grin on his face. You know, his, his the way he writes, his style of writing, um, is he writes and there's just the twist at the end of the sentence. Uh, you know, like the line we quoted at the very beginning. Uh, where he says, the dead as a rule are not super, or the dead are not superstitious, not as a rule, right? As though the dead could be superstitious, right? The dead are dead. (laughs) And and, and it's just this this kind of uh, wry twist he has at the end of every sentence that makes reading the entire book very delightful. And this is is a character that, characteristic of most, uh, or a good portion of his writing, I think. All right. Um, Anything else on the Hounds of God? He gets uh, rescued from Gulheim. Comes back, repents, I guess. Silas returns, and it comes to find out Silas was actually, uh, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but fighting the Jacks, uh, killing a whole hand or a group of Jacks. There was that affair in San Francisco four right. years ago. Yeah, right. This is jumping ahead, but why not? The reason why the man Jack was coming to kill Bod, uh, as is revealed in chapter seven, I think, is that there was a prophecy. Uh, that someone who walked between the border of life and death would be the end of the order of the jacks of of, of, of all trades, right? Mm-hmm. And these jacks are all sorts of different jacks. You know, you have um, Jack Frost. Uh, what are some of the other jacks? I don't remember them off the top of my head. And somehow this this prophecy pointed to 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 Bod. You had Dandy, Catch, uh, Nimble, Tar. So there's a prophecy. That's why they sent the man Jack out to kill him. Uh, so that you know, but at the same time, what ends up happening is really uh, Bod only ends the last four. The majority of the ending of the order actually comes by the hand of Silas, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Which's headstone is uh, one of those uh, standalone episodes. We get into that mm-hmm. at, in the middle of the book here, uh, where he's simply uh, exploring uh, the graveyard. And finding that at the at the, uh, the west side of the hill, the, towards the bottom, beneath an apple tree, there's all sorts of um, you know rubbish spread about and, and old grave sites. And uh, what's down there? Uh, Bod wants to know. And so he so he asks the guardian, and, and he tells him that this is you know the Potter's Field where they bury criminals and and all those um, uh, who are not of faith and suicides. They talk about suicides. Uh, which is something that we should talk about a little bit, I think. I thought yep. that was a, uh, a helpful uh, worldview thing in there with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he meets he meets a witch. And uh, she apparently didn't float in water. <laughs> of course, they weighed down her chair, so of course she didn't float. Uh, but then when she came up out of the water, she was able to curse them all before she died. <laughs> <laughs> which proves she was a witch, so then they burned her until she was really uh, very well toasty. And burned, uh, of course, her cur- her curse worked. She she recalls uh, they bought a uh, a rug from London and it brought the the plague, and they all ended up looking just like she did, dead and blackened. Yeah, but he, but he befriends her. I mean, she's obviously older than he is at this point. Um, but but you know they have a they have a friendship in mind, right? And so he wants to. Um, to help her specifically that that she doesn't have a headstone 
Mm-hmm. You know, she's in this potter's field, and it's, you know, um, why does she need a headstone? It's a good question. To mark where she lays, it's, a, it's in some sense, it's a symbol of status, right? I mean, even even today, you know, mm-hmm. I just took myself took a walk through a graveyard today, and uh, <laughs> you know who has money and who doesn't, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, when you see the mausoleum, you that, that tells you a lot. <laughs> or, or if you see the, the the grave that's twenty feet deep, so that you can't get to the guy's poems, um, <laughs> that does say something too, I suppose. Oh yeah, so the, she went the graveyard marked with a uh, with a carved wooden stump. Yeah, right, exactly. So they definitely want to, um, or he wants to help her. You know that kind of actually just respect her humanity, despite the fact that she uh, was a heathen witch. Um, you know, to to treat her in death with some dignity. Liza Hemstock, by the way, is her name. Yep, Liza Hemstock. Well, uh, there's a little more. He he goes down to the Slear and finds the uh, the brooch, and then he goes to sell it to buy her uh, a gravestone. Right, and, and uh, she ends up, and then she ends up uh, redeeming him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she rescues him from, uh, or gives him the ability to fade, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they manage to escape, and he escapes with a paperweight. Uh, that he eventually paints her name on and becomes her headstone. Right. That's one. That was a great chapter in that. It, I mean, it really. I mean, even if you didn't know any of those characters, I mean, you might wonder, okay, why is this kid hanging out in a in a graveyard? But uh, it does complement the rest of the book. But at the same time, it really is almost standalone too. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it had sure. a nice tidy resolution at the end, and and uh, with with some compliment to the story, he receives the the, the card. Jack's card, um, you know, Jack Frost, so which he provides for Silas. That I think that probably gave Sil- Silas was probably investigating that you know the uh, the death. I don't know if they, he knew it was the Jacks, mm-hmm. but then that that certainly tipped him off when he gets the card. Yeah, when he gets the card. Yeah, yeah. So you had the stare, the the story moving along with that. Let's um, let's actually uh, if you're following along at home. Pages uh, 100 and following, we're going to talk a bit about the suicides, you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let me read um, a little bit. Bod is questioning Silas about those who are buried in this other side of the, on the other side of the graveyard. Silas walked across the path without disturbing a fallen leaf and sat down on the bench beside Bod. There are those, he said in his silken voice, who believe that all land is sacred, that it is sacred before we come to it and sacred after. But here, in your land, they blessed the churches and the ground they set aside to bury people in, to make it holy. But they left land unconsecrated, beside the sacred ground, potter's fields, to bury criminals and the suicides, or those who are not of the faith. So the people buried in the ground on the other side of the fence are bad people? Silas raised one perfect eyebrow. Mm, Oh no, not at all. Let's see, it has been a while since I've been down that way, but I don't remember anyone particularly evil. Remember, in days gone by, you could be hanged for stealing a shilling. And there are always people who find their lives have become so unsupportable, they believe the best thing they could do would be to hasten their transition to another plane of existence. They kill themselves, you mean, said Bod. He was about eight years old, wide-eyed and inquisitive, and he was not stupid. Indeed. Does it work? Are they happier dead? Sometimes. Mostly no. It's like the people who believe they'll be happy if they go and live somewhere else, 
but who learn it doesn't work that way. Wherever you go, you take yourself with you, if you see what I mean. <laughs> uh, sort of, said Bod. Silas reached down and ruffled the boy's hair. Bod said, what about the witch? Yes, exactly, said Silas. Suicides, criminals, and witches. Those who died unshriven. He stood up, a midnight shadow in the twilight. All this talking, he said, and I have not even had my breakfast. While you will be late for lessons. In the twilight of the graveyard, there was a silent implosion, a flutter of velvet darkness, and Silas was gone. Mm-hmm. So an interesting discussion on uh, graveyards and uh, and uh, graveyards and as they roughly used. Yeah, and death. Right. Right. And from a, you know, this is a children's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you call it a young adult book, given the length. Mm-hmm. It's 300 pages. But the, um, you know, to actually, you have these dead characters. Uh, it makes sense that you would you would deal with, you know, the character of the of their death, especially a tragic one. Mm-hmm. You don't have, I mean, because Bod's parents are tragically killed, and his sister, mm-hmm. uh, and that and that you're going to deal with that. But then to deal with, you know, these other kind of characters and the nature of the not everybody died a natural so called natural death. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great. I thought this was a great way to kind of introduce the children to that question is it really better for them to suicide well really not <laughs> um yeah yeah there's an interesting uh, somewhat i guess implicit critique and i think rightly so of this notion of sacred ground uh, blessed ground and and un and unblessed ground you know the right. idea that that it's wrong that that in some way christians are holier than than non-christians and that it's wrong to bury uh, non-Christians next to Christians. Cause I mean, that's really seemed to be, I mean, that's not seemed to be, it was part of the piety of, of, uh, previous mm-hmm. eras of the world. And, and, and this sort of notion that Christians are holier and therefore deserve to be buried in, in holy ground is just not true. Right. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we acknowledge the fact that we are all sinful, right. That, that, uh, I deserve to be buried next to the murder and flander or whatever else, because I'm just as much of a sinner, uh, and and need need the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ alone, uh, mm-hmm. just as much as the flander or the murderer or whoever else it might be. Yep, criminal or the witch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, what it is is I mean, in a helpful way. Uh, Gaiman here is trying to um, confess an anthropology. You know that we're all in this together in a way. You mm-hmm. know, uh, equally going to see death, for example. Mm-hmm. And everybody sees death. One of the other things to pick up real quick, because I just happen to be looking on, on the bottom of page 104 uh, and talking once again about Gaiman's writing style and just kind of the wry grin, or actually how he includes all the epithets in the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the various characters, you know, like Thomas Pennyworth. Here he lies in the certainty of the most glorious resurrection. They're not particularly amusing. What's amusing is the fact that he includes them all. Like, you, you, you identify the characters in the story by their epithets. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty... Pretty uh, delightful. You know, I don't know what his intent was, but it is it is a tradition that's that's lapsed. People don't don't come up with these things before they die, mm-hmm. um, or their families don't include them afterwards because you have to pay the um, manufacturer of the of the headstone you mm-hmm. know, extra for that. And plus, we use these little things now where we don't have enough space to actually write much on it. Having been walk having walked through a graveyard earlier today, I recommend uh, that you actually come up with your own because if your children do it. Um, <laughs> you may yes. not be so happy about what they put on. <laughs> right. Well, that goes for every aspect of your funeral. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Plan your own funeral. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and this is this is one of the themes again. You see this throughout the book is is he's learning manners 
he he's actually learning manners, right? Uh, mm. In in the sense that that he's learning manners. There's a point in their game and says he could he could greet somebody politely across. Was it like ten, fifteen years. different centuries or something like that? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but but the thing is, is is that's what's characteristic of an era uh, from not actually too long ago. But we've lost this sort of uh, idea uh, of. Of uh, politeness, it's it's getting some sort of restoration, and in, in, you know some of these blogs like the Art of Manliness or something, uh, these I, these attempts to bring back this sort of politeness and respect uh, that that we used to have as a culture and as a people, you know, respect to humanity. But um, you know, I think we've we've lost a lot of that. Well, and and, and you could say. Bod, having been raised from the de- raised by the dead, is actually more human than those who are living. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is the great irony. He he shows greater respect for the living, even though he was raised by the dead. Right. He doesn't succumb to chronological snobbery. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know the, exactly. the triumph of the now over over the the them. The next chapter is uh, Dance Macabre, uh, and this is uh, a story. Uh, Bod has has aged a bit. He's no longer eight. I believe he's ten or eleven, maybe twelve, mm-hmm. something in that uh, time frame. And uh, he notices something odd going on. Everybody is is in this happy spirit or whatever, and uh, and. Uh, he's not sure why everybody in the graveyard and he, for some reason he can't hang around with anybody in the graveyard. They all kick him out. Uh, and, uh, and so he leaves the graveyard or well, while he's in the graveyard, he sees that the mayoress of the town is picking flowers, which he thought was kind of weird. And there's a brief discussion of tradition. We'll come back to that. Uh, and then, uh, for some reason he's compelled to go into town. He hears this music, right? The thing is, he's not really supposed to leave the graveyard because if he leaves the graveyard, then he loses the protection of the graveyard. I think this might be one of the, uh, this is only like the second time I think he leaves the graveyard, but he leaves, he goes into town. He hears this music that seems to be beating in him. He goes into town and as he comes into town, he receives one of the flowers picked by the mayoress. And, uh, and then he comes into town, and as he comes into town, all the people from the graveyard are coming into the town, and they uh, shake hands, uh, the, the leader of the graveyard, Josiah Worthington, baronet, and then the mayoress of the town, they shake hands, and then there's a dance between the dead and the living for this one night. It happens once in a blue moon, I believe they say, whenever these flowers <laughs> bloom. And then the next morning, nobody remembers it. Uh, uh, I think uh, nobody but Bod. For some reason, Bod, who walks kind of the boundary b- between the living and the dead, remembers it. But nobody, whether living or dead, remembers this. Uh, or if they do remember it, as Josiah Worthington points out to him, uh, they don't talk about it. So great little chapter. But what I thought was interesting is I have a marker in here uh, talking about about tradition. Uh, this is on page 151, where Mrs. K- uh, Carraway, the lady mayoress, is uh, is picking flowers. She took the scissors from him, that is, from one of the men that was with her, and began to cut clumps of blossom, and she and the three men started to fill the baskets with the flowers. This is, said Mrs. Carraway, the lady mayoress, after a little while, perfectly ridiculous. It is, said the fat man, a tradition. Perfectly ridiculous, said Mrs. Carraway, but she continued to cut the white blossoms and drop them into the wicker baskets. When they had filled the first basket, she asked, isn't that enough? We need to fill all four baskets, said the smaller man, and then distribute a flower to everyone in the old town. 
And what kind of a tradition is that, said Mrs. Carraway. I asked the Lord Mayor before me, and he said he'd never heard of it. Then she said, do you get the feeling someone's watching us? Okay, and that's kind of uh, the basic idea, you know, this, this discussion of, of traditions and the value of these traditions. She doesn't see any value in it when she's actually doing it, right? When she's picking the flowers, when she's pinning the flowers. But when the tradition comes to its height, that's where it actually finds meaning, right? When the tradition actually, you know, sometimes the beginning, she doesn't understand what's going on, but once she understands the tradition, gets into the tradition, then the tradition has meaning and value, right? When they actually get into the dancing and, and, and there's this huge party between the living and the dead, then all of a sudden that tradition has meaning. I guess what I thought was interesting about this is this is a contrast to uh, so often in in popular writing now, the tradition the, the the idea is to critique critique tradition out of hand. It doesn't matter if it's a tradition, then it's bad. It's a waste of time, right? But Neil Ga- Gaiman isn't doing that, right? He actually uh, is, in some sense, pointing out that the tradition actually has value. You may not see it at the beginning, but the tradition come the value in the tradition comes later. Mm-hmm. Does it have any point? <laughs> that isn't even the point. <laughs> You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Josiah Worthington said, The dead and the living do not mingle, boy. We are no longer part of their world. They are no longer part of ours. If it happened that we danced the dance macabre with them, the dance of death, then we would not speak of it, and we certainly would not speak of it to the living. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's, it's like it never even happened. Right. And maybe this is not a time to talk about, you know, kind of the idea of the worldview, but I think maybe this gets to a bit of the worldview behind this book and since that he can he can praise the value of tradition and then in the same chapter give it no value in the sense that nobody remembers it, nobody cares. Like hmm. there's value in the tradition, right? It's worth it. But at the same time nobody remembers it and it doesn't really matter at the end. <laughs> it's just part of their ethos. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of what they do. It was a late medieval allegory for the universality of death. No one, no matter what, uh, one station in life, the dance of death unites all. Yeah, you know, and this 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 uh, reminds me of of uh, the fact this makes sense because who actually le- eventually ends up leading them in the dance of the dead? The one who will lead them all. Yeah, the lady on the gray. Right. She's the one that comes and leads the dance of the dead, and she's also the one that takes everybody when. And they die from death to, or from life to death, basically. So at the end, Bod gets to dance with uh, the lady on the gray. Mm-hmm. And uh, he asks her, or he's talking to her about her horse. And, and she says, he is gentle enough to bear the mightiest of you away on his broad back and strong enough for the smallest of you as well. Well, this uh, is, and this is connected to the, um, uh, the Ars Moriendi. I don't know if you know this. No, uh, which is it's a medi- it was the whole uh, medieval uh, the art of dying. So they would use this this allegory then to to teach people that that they should always be uh, perennially prepared for death. Mm-hmm. Right, know? and which is where you get books like Gerhardt's uh, Handbook of Consolations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. how to die a blessed death. Yeah, probably one of the values of reading this book is in is in actually once again helping young people to think about death, right? Because this is something that they're not comfortable with thinking about, and of course, Gaiman's approach is um, maybe a little too lighthearted about it. 
but at the same time, it's actually getting getting them to think about death and actually think about dying and, and what it means to die and how to die well. Uh, and that's the whole idea behind Gerhard's Handbook of Consolations, is how do you prepare for death, right? Because nobody thinks about that until they're 80 years old and they're ready to die. Mm-hmm. I think the lightheartedness is probably, a, I'm, again, we don't want to, we, we can't, can't know this for sure, but it, it probably is a reflection of, of kind of, of the worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it reminds me of Christopher Hitchens in a lot of ways and with his, the interviews of him before he died, mm-hmm. um, from cancer, you know, and whether he was concerned about, about the afterlife or whether there was, or there was and he, he was just really pretty indifferent about it. He was just pleased with the life that he had lived, mm-hmm. you know, and that he had, he had contributed uh, intellectually and, and uh, in caring for others with his wife, you know, and caring for humanity in a kind of a general mm-hmm. sense. So maybe it's a, just a, a naturalistic or humanitarianistic kind of uh, worldview. Well, and that seems to be, I mean, if you think about it, there was a portion where uh, Bod had talked to Silas, and I don't have the exact uh, reference, here, but Bod had talked to Silas about Silas about dying, and how he wasn't afraid to die, and how all his friends were uh, among the dead, and was kind of wondering if he should just go be reckless and die. And and Silas says no, largely because you have a life to live, and that's it, right? You know, you have things to go out and do to offer to humanity or whatever, but that's it. They're, they're, I mean, it's just kind of a you need to seize the day, live your own life, uh, and then when it's time for you to die, the lady on the grave will come for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and so there's no. There really doesn't seem to be any purpose in his life. I mean, besides living well and enjoying life, uh, is there any other purpose beyond that for Bod after he um, leaves the graveyard? I mean, to us, that seems to be a little bit of an empty existence. Um, but I, I guess that's because we're always, um, you know, we're looking towards the metaphysical, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the bigger scheme, that this is part of a a larger purpose or plan. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and, and yet at the same time, you know, I have to wonder that this seems like there's still a bit of a question because he says, you know, Bod has a life to go out and live for himself, to enjoy his own life, and, and to make his own existence. But at the same time, Silas and Miss Lupescu are the honor guard for some sort of being who have sent them for the purpose of protecting Bod, right? Who right. who serve as an honor guard for some sort of being or or question mark, shall we say, out there, who serves some sort of purpose for providing an overarching narrative of some some sort, you know, out there. Right. So you know, it, it seems to be uh, kind of a question mark, maybe. Silas said, out there, the man who killed your family is, I believe, still looking for you and still intends to kill you. Bod shrugged. So, he said, it's only death. I mean, all of my best friends are dead. Yes, Silas hesitated. They are. And they are, for the most part, done with the world. You are not. You're alive, Bod. That means you have infinite potential. You can do anything, make anything, dream anything. If you change the world, the world will change. Potential. Once you're dead, it's gone. Over. You've made. What you've made, dreamed your dream, written your name, you may be buried here, you may even walk, but that potential is finished. Bod thought about this. It seemed almost true, although he could think of exceptions, his parents adopting him, for example. But the dead and the living were different. He knew that, even if his sympathies were with the dead. What about you? He asked Silas. What about me? Well, you aren't alive, and you go around and do things. I, said Silas, am precisely what I am, and nothing more. I am, as you say, not alive, but if I am ended, I shall simply cease to be. My kind are, and we are not. 
if you see what I mean. Not really. Yeah, potential. I mean, this is indicating that we are somewhat like machines, you know, that that we don't understand exactly how it works, but but we have the ability yet to do things, right? Mm-hmm. And that and that our purpose is is simply to to be who we are for the purpose of the world, mm-hmm. right? For each other. Mm-hmm. That that there is not there's no necessarily uh, watchmaker, or divine creator, or anything like that. Yeah, and, and and there's no there's no notion of contingency here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is this is kind of emblematic of a worldview, the, the current worldview, anyways. The the other older worldview, shall we say, had a very clear sense of contingency. They knew they were dependent on not only other human beings for their existence, uh, but also another being itself beyond them that they were contingent on, you know, regardless of what that is. Um, and, and here there is no contingency whatsoever, yeah, which okay. is, which is interesting because if you're looking at this from, from a, a purely materialistic evolutionary point of view, everything is contingent, uh, in the sense that you're just a product of materialistic, uh, uh, cogs and wheels that are moving, right? This is deism. These are the cogs and wheels of the universe and you're stuck in them and you're just one of the cogs and wheels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here, uh, uh, Maybe this is almost some form of self-deification. You become your own potential. You become the the primal cause in your existence, and you can change the world. Uh, you know, in the sense that it's really kind of awkward because you can change the world, uh, but if everybody is changing the world, <laughs> you know, where, where does it end, right? If everybody's changing the world, well, mm-hmm. then the world has no semblance. The world has no order, right? And, and towards what aim? Yeah, or, yeah. Or what end? Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is this is one of the critiques that uh, I've kind of uh, latched onto personally uh, of the modern world. This whole idea of believing in yourself, right, or this idea of self confidence. Uh, to believe in yourself is pure idolatry, right? Uh, I mean, we are called to believe in something greater than ourselves, and to to believe in myself, even if this is some ideal, right? This Aristotle didn't believe in himself. Aristotle believed in the idea of a, a virtue and integrity, or he believed in something beyond himself, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not until the modern era that we actually get the notion we can believe in ourselves or have confidence in ourselves. Uh, and this comes from the idea that we can in some way determine our own morality, right? Or maybe, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the idea that we determine our own morality and our own truth comes from this idea that we believe in ourselves. I don't know which came first or the, or, or uh, vice versa, but, uh, it, it's all, it's all tied up into pure idolatry, pure self-worship. Mm-hmm. All right. Convocation. Yeah. Convocation. This, uh, opened up a whole new, uh, look at at the situation when we learn that that jack is part of a, a larger group of they're not named in the convocation of jacks but we learn about you know that he's obviously in cahoots with others and there's a broader conspiracy than he was acting not just on his own behalf but on behalf of this whole group um in the murdering of of uh, bod's parents mm-hmm. and sister mm-hmm yeah, because there was a prophecy, and we, we discussed it briefly at the beginning. There was a prophecy that uh, someone who walked who walked the border between the living and the dead would end would be the end of the order, and somehow this prophecy pointed to Bod and his family, and so that's why they went to kill him. But what's really really odd, if you look at this again, 
is the order itself is a charitable order, right? I mean, it, it's patterned after after the Shriners, right? Uh, they, they go and they, they 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 do good deeds, right? They buy kidney machines and they care for right. the, the right. young, and they do all these fantastic things. And yet they're trying to kill Pod, right? Because he's going to be the end of the order. What's most important above all else is not the good deeds, but preserving the order itself. Oh yes, love of the institution over the purpose <laughs> of the institution. A common critique. <laughs> Right, right. And I don't, you know, I think there are other things uh, that it mentions that the order does, but but uh, the, the at least the public face of the order is all these good deeds. All right. Nobody Owens' school days. This is also has no direct uh, correlation, I think, to... Um... Totally disagree. Oh, okay. Well, then you take this one. I think no Nobody Owens' school days is the, the take on Mowgli's somewhat assimilation into the village okay i could go with that that occurred to me as soon as you said you disagree but yeah i could yeah, go with that a lack of assimilation in the village he kind of is he always remains an outsider mm-hmm. kind of um not part of the situation and only when only when um you know he speaks up uh for what is right or true <laughs> mm-hmm. then he gets noticed mm-hmm. yeah when he when he's brought to the attention of um the the two school bullies, or at least the bully and and his henchmen, henchmen her, her henchmen, yeah. he seeks to to uh, expose them, you know, for who they are. Just as as Mowgli tried to expose the shaman for who he was, which was a sham, mm-hmm. and uh, it doesn't go well for him. He hasn't really thought this through. He didn't plan ahead. Didn't <laughs> think about what the consequences would be for this. Um, it is used for the good in the end because. Um, he reconciles with um with Silas, you know, because he had stormed out on Silas. Mm-hmm. And he also um uh, he grows in his connection um with Liza. Mm-hmm. And then and then also um you know it brings him back brings him back to the graveyard. Right. And so and the same thing happened with Mowgli, you know, he ended up defeating Shere Khan. Um he comes back, you know, grown in a lot of ways, and mature and uh, accepted more still an outsider from the wolves but but still uh, respected or whatever by them mm-hmm. one of the other one of the differences though would be that Mowgli eventually destroyed the village for what they did to uh, to his adoptive mother mm-hmm. uh, whereas there's no correlation there with um graveyard boat yeah. but it is interesting unlike um unlike um uh, jungle book here uh, nobody really does have a very astute sense of the um, how to manipulate the, this world, you know, when it came to uh, getting out of the uh, situation at the end with the police. He may not have thought it through, but he he was he had that same kind of adaption to the situation that um, um, that Mowgli did in his defeat of Shere Khan. You know, mm-hmm. Chapter Seven is uh, Everman Jack, and this is where the Jacks. Finally managed to catch up with uh, Bod. What ends up happening is uh, uh, Scarlet returns to the graveyard. And uh, when she returns to the graveyard, she finds this man doing grave rubbings. And uh, and so she befriends this man, as does her mother eventually. And uh, at the same time, Bod rediscovers Scarlet. And uh, Scarlet starts to act as a go-between between, between uh, Jack and Bod, and some questions regarding the death of Bod's family. And uh, Jack 
uh, or at least Mr. Frost, as he portrays himself, because she doesn't realize he's the Jack and neither does uh, does Bod, gives him information on Bod, the death of Bod's family, uh, or says he has it, and then when Bod goes to find this information, uh, Jack Frost, as he reveals himself to be, uh, attempts to um, kill a bot again, and then the rest of the jacks come in. There's only four remaining at this time. A total of four. There are three other jacks, and they try to kill Bod. And in this chapter, Bod ma- manages to evade all four of them. Uh, eventually, sends three of them into the Ghoul Gate. One right. of them falls into a uh, falls into a hole, uh, mm-hmm. one of the the twenty foot hole where the guy hides his poetry. Mm-hmm. Maybe they discovered it after that. You think? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and then uh, he finally leads the final Jack, um, uh, Jack Frost, into the loving arms of the Sleer, mm-hmm. who pull him through a wall and he dies. Well, you, at least they you, protect him. Are you our master? <laughs> yes, yes. Are you our new master? And he says yes. And so they decide to protect him forever by uh, enshrining him in stone. Mm-hmm. The conclusion was very well done. Like, I think he tied in the uh, the sleer very well. He set them up very well at the beginning, right. uh, and the times that they come up in the story, he does a good job of preparing us for the way the sleer would take uh, Jack Frost. It was kind of disappointing, I suppose, to a degree that uh, Scarlet gets taken away, uh, not to see her again for a while. But once again, you know the the final. Uh, the final chapter, uh, Silas once again points out to him his potential and the fact that he can go and now live a life however however he desires or to make whatever end of his life that, he, that he's capable of doing. And so he has his whole life ahead of him to go out and live, and that's what he goes out to, to start doing. Yeah, and as you said with tying up the loose ends, I mean, this is one of uh, Gaiman's strengths is that he, it, it really, he does have a good sense of uh, editing. I don't know if it's his editors or if it's his writing style. It's probably both. You, you really don't have a lot of extra fluff. There's delight in in in, in the craft of every sentence and and paragraphs mm-hmm. and, and and subject and within the within the chapter and then within the whole narrative. But but even then, you know what what seems to be just kind of a side story becomes part, integrated into the next story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or or later story. I mean. Uh, that whole bit with with Liza's gravestone is is essential, um, you know. Later in in mm-hmm. his school days, mm-hmm. I think you hit on something there. That part of the reason his stories are so evocative and the reason his stories are so brilliant and vivid is because he doesn't spell out everything for you. I mean, you read some of these epic uh, books like Tolkien, and he spells out everything for you, just how it's supposed to feel and, and how everything is supposed to look and smell and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and in a sense, they're great for building the imagination because they teach you how to think about and how to imagine things. But Gaiman leaves it to your to you to imagine the rest of it. So he gives you just enough detail to see to see what he's trying to say. And then your mind feels that fills in the rest of the, fills in the rest of the details. And so it becomes more vivid because he's not doing it for you. That uh, wraps up our review of uh, Graveyard Book and the two Jungle Books. Uh, next month's review, we will be doing H.G. Wells's uh, War of the Worlds. Uh, so do join us for that uh, next month. Once again, thank you for listening to Lies Speaking Truth.